0: I'm Tim Burrows. In today's episode of The Unmakers, I talk to Chris Jans, the proprietor of the most talked about media startup of the year, Sire. Chris has successfully launched startups before, including digital publishing operation Allure Media, which was bought by Fairfax Media. He and Sire colleague David Eisman went on to lead the successful efforts to reinvent the publishing operations of Fairfax Media, the now legendary Project Blue. And after Fairfax's merger with Nine, Jan's narrowly missed out on the top job. After that went to Mike Sneesby. Chris moved on. Sire is his first big project since that exit. Sire's first publication, Capital Brief, launches in a few weeks' time. In today's conversation, we discuss the company's subscription-led business model, he reveals a new approach to the daily publishing cycle, and he has a pretty dire prediction for Facebook exiting the Australian news ecosystem in a few months' time creating a potential $100 million hole for the media industry. I started by asking Chris about Sire. Chris, welcome along. Thank you for finding the time, which is always busy when you're in startup mode. Oh, thanks um, for having me, Tim. Tell me about Sire.
1: Well, look, I'm really building a business that for me is centred on the future of media and I'm a big believer in the business of journalism. I think people who are naysayers about journalism being a real source of inspiration are are wrong and there's plenty of opportunities in Australian journalism and Sire
0: is about capturing that. Okay, um, and we'll we'll, we'll get into some of the details. The top of mind thing is the name Sire. Where does it come from?
1: Well, in, in that old dead language Latin, it means to know. But for us, Sire was always a holding name for the business that we were building on whole. It was in much the same way that Fairfax Media is the holding name of a bunch of mastheads and publications. That's our approach to Sire.
0: And of course, that's quite an important point, because I think until quite recently, people were thinking maybe that would be the consumer facing brand, but it's not. That's going to be Capital Brief.
1: Well, Capital Brief will be our first publication. And Capital Brief really is centred around Australian business as it stands today, Australian business, I think, has changed quite dramatically over the past couple of decades. Millennials are now in the C suite. They're the ones making decisions. Increasingly, they're in the boardroom. At the same time, we've had the rise of the entrepreneurial community and startups, um, and Australian startups making their mark on the world stage, commanding billion dollar valuations. Uh, this is a publication that is intended to really appeal to those people driving that new economy, driving the new Australia. And I I hesitate to say new economy because it is the economy, uh, but we're really centred at looking forward as to what the future of Australian
0: business is about. I presume they're also just looking to serve the big end of town when it comes to business too.
1: Well, I think one of the challenges with business journalism sometimes is it can drift into just servicing the big end of town. And we hear a lot about the ASX 20, the ASX 50. We don't hear a lot about the emerging stories of success until maybe they're not that successful. So we're really about looking at the broad spectrum of Australian business as it stands today and and really looking
0: forward. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, one of the things that does strike me about that coverage of startups is I get so tired of reading the press release about the launch, the funding, and you never read about what happens when it goes wrong or if it goes off course which it often does in that startup space so how are you how are you going to be able to avoid that habit of there's always another story and another press release that's fed by the big pr machines um and actually tell the real stories about that space i think we have great
1: informed journalists and that's the key key to the formula is having a journalism team that really understands what is actually going on in Australian business. I look at Milkrun as a prime example of how Australian startups are covered and there was the initial burst of activity around this exciting new startup is revolutionizing this space. There were magazine cover stories saying the overnight success of the next big thing and then within six months, there's a story of the disaster and covering from every angle how this was never going to work. And the, the real story is much more nuanced and I think much more interesting. So taking that step back and not being fed by the spin machine or only focusing on disaster and actually reflecting what's actually going on, I think is critically important, whether it's startup or, or the big end of
0: town. And we'll dig into the editorial team in a moment. I think just maybe just sort of one more question about the proposition, which will, will be important to advertisers as well, I'm sure, is um, you will be sort of offering the full slate of business coverage, though. That's the ambition.
1: We will be selective in what we cover. And one of the things that we are very focused on is only, only approaching and doing the job where we know we'll do it right and have the right people in place. So there are areas of the economy that we won't cover. There are areas that we won't launch with. It's about having the right team in place to deliver the right coverage.
0: The competitive set, I presume, is AFR, the Australian... But do you also think of the others like, I don't know, um, Startup Daily or The Market Herald or what, what is the space you're playing in?
1: I think this is one of the challenges with how media in Australia works is that the focus is on your competitor and you'll see often that someone will publish a story, then the competitor needs to publish a fast follow to try and own the story and then the other competitor will publish another story and, and and chase it as their own as well. For us, we're really focused on running our own race and that's being really mindful of who our audience is, what's important to them and how we're going to cover stories that provides insight for them. Uh, so I... I Look, I hesitate to actually define a competitive set because I think for smart business leaders, they're going to, there's room for plenty of publications. Um, they're going to have an appetite to learn from wherever they can. It's, it's, it's not a zero-sum game.
0: Let's talk um, a little bit more about that audience. Um, one important thing is demographic, and I think you've just sort of alluded to the the, the, the business side of things. Um, another important thing is size of audience. Um, What assumptions are you making about the scale of audience you can reach?
1: This is absolutely not a scale play. And that speaks to another trend that I think is really important in media. There was a wave 15, 20 years ago of... So many, uh, so many startup media businesses chasing mass scale off the back of search and social. This is not it. We are very targeted on quite a specific audience, and we want to service and overservice that audience, and not be reliant on the algorithms of third parties or having to achieve advertising at scale. So that's that. That's a core premise of the business. When you look to think of who the audience that we're targeting it is, I I, I think, you know, you look at the Commonwealth Bank. The CEO was appointed in his early forties. He's someone who commands the second largest company, commands power in the second largest company on the ASX today. You look at Telstra appointing a, a female executive to their board, and now they've had to introduce a parental leave policy as a result of her becoming pregnant. These are these are things that are, you know, relatively new to Australian business, but uh, are a new wave that is is really changing the shape of business and. I think the coverage needs to reflect what's important to those kind of people.
0: Something which um, has been, I guess, my experience having been involved in running one or two much smaller propositions is you wear your editor's hat and you talk about engagement and how the numbers don't matter and you talk to your sales team about that and the sales team, they nod and agree and they say, but the advertisers want a number. What number can I tell them? Um, How do you answer that one with your sales team?
1: I think the core proposition for us is we're building a subscription-driven product. So it's about servicing our subscribers and the people who have a propensity to subscribe. If we build the powerful audience that we're looking to build and we're confident that we will then there's an environment there that will be will be attractive to certain commercial partners. Will it be attractive to everyone? No. Is it a scale play? No. Are we competing with Google, Facebook or the reach of the Nine Group or News Corp? No. It's quite a particular proposition that is different um, that plays to context and trust in the
0: environment that we're building. Let's take the diversion a moment then to the subscription side. Um, what assumptions are you making about the number of potential subscribers out there?
1: That's... Probably we'd be running ahead of the curve to share that publicly, but we're confident in the assumptions that we built around the business. And we've done plenty of homework in understanding both the audience, their propensity to pay, and what's of interest to them and, and we'll follow through on that path.
0: And how big is the universe of that audience, the potential people who could be subscribers? Another way of asking the same question, Tim.
1: I know your trick. <laughs> um, it Look, is, public numbers are not something we're putting out there sure.
0: at the moment, but yep. we're confident in the model. Okay. When will you actually start taking to the market pricing numbers, for instance, for subscribing? That'll be something
1: around launch, which is September. So we're, we're within spitting distance of, of
0: that period already. September. Um, have you set the date in September? No, we haven't. Right, okay. I guess it doesn't particularly need to be um, aligned to a quarter or anything. Um, what what factors will finally decide launch
1: day? It really comes down to the team and ensuring that our team is confident in the proposition that we're taking to market. But we're also not taking the done product to market. This isn't, uh, as you would have launched media products you know, three decades ago, when you, the first cover of your magazine has had four dozen runs, and, and you have it refined to the point that your launch on newspaper on newsagent stands is is perfect, will be evolving and developing over time and responding to the audience. So, but that team functioning and working well is is the core.
0: And again, as you say, subscriptions is so. Do you see subscriptions as being a larger driver of revenue than advertising? Absolutely. Okay. And um, advertising, will you will you have enough outside of the paywall that you'll be able to achieve some sort of audience to service advertisers?
1: Probably speaking to a little bit of our secret source uh, that will be revealed soon, but there will be the opportunity for commercial messages to get to a broader audience. It's really not our focus, though. Our focus is on having quality journalism that's worth paying for and ensuring that we build that subscription base.
0: So in your time at nine, where you were responsible for the publishing at nine, you had uh, kind of under your wing the, the AFR, which is very much a hard paywall. You really had to be a subscriber to get any of the editorial content. Um, and you also had the City Morning Herald and The Age, um, which is a much softer paywall. Um, Which philosophy did you prefer?
1: That's a really tough question, Tim, um, because the reality is it's a different philosophy depending on the business model of the publication. But what I would say is one of the tensions that you see in traditional media companies globally is that tension between building a subscription business where you are looking for journalism that is worth paying for and appeals specifically to a subscriber set versus mass-reach, broad advertising business. And the two can be in conflict at times. By going in with a blank sheet of paper and just building a business that is really focused on what is the right outcome for our subscribers, you do end up with potentially a different answer in your journalism mix and how you build your reporting team than if you're about chasing scale while also trying to build a subscription business as well.
0: Well, let's actually dive into the reporting team. Tell me about the editorial hires you've made so far.
1: Look, we're really excited by the reporting team and we've spoken to, I think it'd be fair to say we've spoken to a couple of hundred people in the market about what we're doing and whether or not it's the right approach for them and us. And what has been really clear is that not everyone is able to approach the mindset of a subscription driven business product. They're, they're, there's almost a degree of training that happens in newsrooms to teach you how to build audiences at scale. So in the team that we've you're, built... You're trying to say clickbait without saying the word clickbait, aren't oh, um, um, you? Yeah. Look, I'm very happy to talk about <laughs> clickbait. I think that's one of the problems, look, with journalism in this country today and some of the models is that the business models themselves build are built on potentially award-winning journalism, clickbait, partisan politics, sensationalism uh, and and pointed opinion. And for the average audience member, it's really hard to tell the difference between something that is there on the page because that publication's pursuing an agenda or because that publication's pursuing audience at scale or because it's just bloody good journalism. In the approach that we're taking, we've taken a step back and said, it's all just about great journalism that is worth paying for for our audience. So you, we will not be approaching a clickbait model. We will not have a model that's driven by search and social Our model is entirely driven by the right journalism for the audience that we're looking to attract. And does that rule out some journalists, do you think? Absolutely. It absolutely does. And in having conversations with journalists, you very quickly realise that some people are trained just to think that way now. And it is taught in some journalism schools. (laughs) It's absolutely taught in some newsrooms. In the team that we've built, we've been looking for people who are really focused on providing insights that you can't get
0: elsewhere and are really interested in telling stories that you can't get elsewhere. Well, you won't be able to list them all, but yeah, let's run through some of the people who are now in the public domain then who are coming across to you.
1: So John McDooling is our Editor-in-Chief. He's joined us from the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, where he was National Business Editor, and that gave him broad responsibility across coverage of business, media, uh, technology and power. Uh, John is someone that I have known for, for well over a decade now and really got to know him through a project that we had in Fairfax Project Blue that was about redefining how those newsrooms worked and rethinking how we approach the business of journalism. Uh, he also has experience outside The Herald, The Age and The Financial Review. He was part of the launch team at Quartz in the US. So has spent time on a new build before, spent time rethinking about how the model works. And um, he's he's a bloody good journalist too. So John is at the centre of our newsroom. Uh, Then our other journalists are really a mix of people who have either been in large newsrooms, been in the trade, focusing on a very specific topic area, or have been in journalism, gone away and are coming back into journalism. So we have the likes of Philip Wen, who was the uh, first Australian journalist to be kicked out of China when he was the Wall Street Journal's correspondent there. He's moving back from New Delhi to cover business and geopolitics for us. And you look at the the importance of China and India to Australian business. I think the perspectives that he can offer from being on the ground are really critical. Uh, In Canberra, we're led by Anthony Galloway, who's currently... Uh, the Sunday newspaper's correspondent for Nine. Uh, he is an amazing talent who is absolutely on the rise and understands how power really works in Canberra, but also understands really interesting topics around national security and a lot of the things that aren't talked about in the open and can, I think, dive a little bit under the covers. Jennifer Jukes also uh, with us in Canberra, she's coming back to journalism as our economics correspondent. And she's previously covered the media and telco beats as well in the past, I think. She has. So has broad-based business experience, uh, broad experience in Canberra, understands how things work. And um, I'm really excited to be working with her again. Andrew
0: Cornell is coming back to journalism after... I think, eight years away. Now, this is an interesting one because he was uh, ANZ Blue Notes. Um, now, I guess the first interesting question was, would would he challenge you on the phrase coming back to journalism?
1: Well, coming back to a daily newsroom because, it, you know, Blue Notes was the first corporate newsroom in the country and I think has done a spectacular job for ANZ. The world has continued to evolve, though, and I think if you... And I'm not going to speak for Andrew, but I think if you spoke to him, he's excited about being back in that daily that daily newsbeat. Yes,
0: absolutely. He's obviously a big name. Um, uh, Bronwyn Clune as well, who's a, a name I hadn't seen for a little while, but she's um, she's 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 coming back to. She'll be one of your, your your people covering the startup side of things.
1: Yeah, and Bronwyn's another person who I think has had that industry experience. She's been involved in venture. She's been involved in startups. Understands how things actually work on the other side and and is coming back into the journalism space. Of course, she was Editor-in-Chief
0: of Startup Smart. Okay, excellent. Something else I find myself wondering about, and this probably sort of speaks to your thinking about being a sort of a, a fresh sheet of paper when it comes to media coverage. Still at the heart of it, mostly text-based journalism? Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, I
1: think the reality of the internet subscription model is text is still where it's at. Audio's emerging, videos emerging, or and in some cases already challenged through uh, the dominance of YouTube. You look at the models that are really working internationally, and they are driven by text. In your mind's
0: eye, where is your? And I know it will be more than one, but you always you, you probably have an ideal reader in your mind. Are they consuming you on the web, on app, on mobile? Um, everyone's been assuming there won't be a print product and I'm sure they won't. But yeah, where, where, where are people actually um, likely to be consuming the product? I think, think they're
1: reading us where they want to read us. And people ask, are you going to be a newsletter-first company or an app-first company or a mobile-first company? I think the reality is we will be publishing on a range of platforms and it's up to the individual reader to decide how they
0: want to consume our coverage. That That's definitely... I think I agree with the, the strategy and the philosophy of that. I I wonder if it's hard in reality to actually get the user to understand that. Um, let me try and give you an example of what I mean. Um, hey, look, I, I think of something like Crikey and I know that they're a multi-platform brand, but I think of them as the email newsletter that arrives in my inbox at lunchtime. And there's so much more than that, but that's how I think of them. Um... So that I guess the thing, the, the thing you do best and the cadence you hit will be where people think of you first. Do you have a sense of what that thing will be yet? No, I, I think it's a
1: blend. And you look to the wave of publications in the US that are being built off the back of quality journalism. A lot of them have either decided to focus on web or newsletter. And the problem with focusing on one or the other is inevitably the other thing becomes the afterthought. And it's much the same as what traditionally happened in newsrooms being driven by the print cycle. It was all about the daily newspaper and the daily newspaper deadlines. And digital was the afterthought, and in some cases, still is a bit of an afterthought to the print production cycle. We've got the benefit of starting from scratch and being able to draw inspiration from all of the models that are taking place around the world today. And that does lead you, I think, to a blended model where you equally prioritise the importance of newsletters and web, but it's, it's, it's not one or the other. But I think even elevating newsletters to equal priority is something that really hasn't happened in this market before.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Now, one of the things which will, I guess, then define your editorial daily cycle is the time of day that the newsletter drops. Will you decide the time of day the newsletter drops or will that be in the user's control? We will absolutely decide
1: And there will be multiple newsletter products, I should say. Um, We will have a daily edition that is literally our edition of the day. And that's an afternoon product. We'll have a morning product that is more a, what do I need to know that's happened overnight? How do I come up to speed on, on what's been going on? And then we'll have a series of vertical products focused on whether it's what's happening in Canberra, what's happening in climate and energy, um, or what's happening in other spaces. So your flagship product is an
0: afternoon product. It is. That's interesting.
1: And, and that's an intentional choice. And there are a lot of choices that you can make when you have the blank sheet of paper and start to question why things done the way they are uh, that do change your perspective on things. By being in the afternoon, we're able to reflect on what's happened in the day. We're not driven by a print publishing cycle. So we don't have to wait till two o'clock in the morning. We can publish at the time that makes sense to us based on what's happened in a particular day.
0: Interesting. Okay, let's zigzag around a bit. Um, So, Sire, um, I think this is in the public domain, but perhaps you can talk through who who the investors are.
1: In looking for investors, it was really important for us to find people who were committed to the long journey here, rather than being a typical VC who has to have a return on funds in a short space of time, or being someone who was a high net worth individual that was driven by ideology. And when I left Nine, I had plenty of conversations, and there were plenty of people interested in backing a media venture that fit into one of those two camps. We're interested in media because of the return that we can see, and there are public media businesses in this country that are operating at incredible margins on a global basis, or they were interested in fixing journalism in inverted commas because their their topic of the day um, was not appropriately covered in their eyes. Okay, we- so that, so that's who the investors are not. So the people that we're working with are from a firm, Shearwater Capital. Their managing partner is Zach Savos, who of course founded Conversant Media oh, well over a decade ago. God,
0: it was about it was before ARN Media was even HTE. I think there were still APN news and media back then when I, they sold I, to them, weren't they? I,
1: I think they were. And Zach and I used to compare notes. I founded a business Allure Media. We used to compare notes pretty regularly on as as the whole startup media scene did in, in that period. On what was happening in our world. So I've known Zach for a long time and know that he intimately understands media, is excited by media trends, but is a really smart businessman. He in that firm has the backing of two key principals, um, Mike Gregg and Charles Gibbon, who worked with him. One one of whom worked with him on Conversant, but since he left, what was then ht and um, Zach reunited with with those. To people to build a firm that was all about investing in emerging technology businesses. The reason they are fantastic partners for us is that they're excited by our business because of the business model. They're genuinely in it for the long haul. It's their own money and not the money of other people, so they don't need to flip the business. And they're all entrepreneurs at heart. They've made their wealth through smart investments in firms over time. So they're they're the perfect partners and and people that I think are a perfect match for what we're doing. Now
0: they are players in the startup space. What are the rules of engagement in how you cover their investments, for instance?
1: With full transparency. And that's a principle across the board. We're looking to build a masthead that people trust, unless you are completely transparent in everything you do and how you do it. Um, from how our newsroom runs to our core editorial principles, you won't build that trust. So, if there is any crossover,
0: people will know. So, and and if a journo comes across a story about a startup that's not worked out or whatever, they'll still be able to cover it in exactly the same way?
1: Absolutely. And that, I think, would be the full expectation of the investors too. They're, they're investing in this business to build the success of this business.
0: Okay. Okay. Um... Let's just just touch on the commercial a little bit more, I'll hear everything you say about being subscription first. Tell me about your sales team. It's small.
1: It's very small, i.e. me and one other person, um, which is very intentional. As I said at the beginning, our focus is on being a subscription-driven business and yes, there's a commercial partnership element, but it isn't driving our editorial mission or, or the goals of
0: the overall business. And who is that other salesperson? We brought on board as our
1: commercial lead, James Lees, who's recently returned to Australia from Hong Kong. He was there uh, leading commercial partnerships for the region for the Financial Times. And previously, he, he was at Fairfax. So I know James from back in his Fairfax days. He's spent time understanding, I think, what is arguably the world's best business publication and business business, uh, and and just come home.
0: Let's um, talk about the potential size of the team. Maybe starting with Capital Brief on day one during September. How many people will be on the team by then?
1: Overall business about twenty five, of which the newsroom is twenty. So and. That again is an intentional decision to invest in our content. Our the editorial coverage in the newsroom is absolutely leading the business, rather than the the tail wagging the dog, so to speak. And that's a newsroom that we'll build over time.
0: And um, the uh, the costs of people. I suppose I found myself thinking back a bit. I chatted to the people from the Guardian on their tenth anniversary recently, and I found myself thinking about two thousand and thirteen and there'd been a big cull of journalists at News Corp, a big cull of journalists at Fairfax in 2012. So there are a lot of people and good people in the market, and it felt like it was the perfect time for The Guardian to make a run. Um, so the wind was sort of perhaps behind The Guardian then. This time, is, is the wind behind you, against you, or kind of neutral, do you think, when it comes to making hires?
1: Oh, that's an interesting question, Tim, because I could approach the answer in so many ways. What I would say is that we have had hundreds of expressions of interest and plenty of people coming forward who are interested in joining us. And of those people, we've been able to pick a really talented team. Uh, I think there are challenges in the broader media sector. Whether or not that affects the talent base that's available, I'm, I'm not sure, uh, But we are really, really thrilled with the group of people that we put together that we've
0: announced this week and that we will announce in the coming weeks. I've seen coverage previously in recent weeks suggesting you've not got everybody you wanted to get, you know, Um, I suspect you've helped an awful lot of people get pay rises where they are. I, I think it's
1: fair to say we've assisted some pay rises for people that I've had conversations with and people that I haven't spoken to in years. <laughs> um, anecdotally, I've absolutely heard that as well. But look, I think it's the wrong way of thinking about it to sit there and say, you'll sit back and rely on factors that are happening in other media companies to to build your talent book. Our talent book has really been about talking to people who... Uh, we think are outstanding journalists who can bring to the table a different perspective potentially to what's being covered out there, and we built the team that we want to build off the back of it. We, It's not a case of I've been on a poaching spree and have missed out on a bunch of people. In fact, everyone that we've hired, except for one person, are people that applied and went through an interview process where we talked to them about what their ambitions were and what they thought about the opportunity for our publication was. And uh, we saw whether or not there was a match and we've ended up with a group where there's absolutely a match. And I don't think I've missed out on anyone where I thought that there was a match. Will you take on cadets? In the near term, our focus really is on an experienced team who can provide that level of insight and depth that you only really understand with experience.
0: Um, again, zigzagging around on topics. Um, the union, um, will you welcome conversations with the union about recognising it from the beginning or how are you thinking about that?
1: I would hope the MEAA would say that I've always had a constructive relationship with them and, of course, will always be open to a conversation. At the same time, I think it's important to talk directly to your staff and with a team the size that we have if i don't understand the ins and outs of everything that's going across the newsroom and everything that's
0: happening then something's wrong will there be collective bargaining from the start
1: look we're paying people well 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 above uh award rates and the conditions that the broader market offers so i i don't think you'd talk to any of our team and they'd say they need they they feel the
0: need for a collective negotiation um yeah that that team size, I suppose I found myself thinking, and you, you have alluded to this already, I'm guessing, well, your, your, your annualised costs must be in the millions. I wouldn't be surprised if if you top 10 million. Um, you're, you're smiling at that. I don't know if that means oh, no. I'm
1: over-egging it or not. No, I just love the back of the envelope <laughs> maths. I'm, yeah. I'm doing it myself.
0: Yes, yeah. I mean, look at the numbers we've talked so far. It would obviously be a bit less than that. But uh, but anyway, I guess what I'm getting at is... Um,
1: it's one of the benefits of being a private company yes. that you yes. don't need to release your, yeah, your,
0: absolutely. your numbers to the no, market. Yeah, absolutely. No, I suppose the key question is um, how long is your runway?
1: Significant. And we, we're not planning on being a profitable business in the first, second or third year. This is about building a business for the long term that is sustainable. And when you have that support and that runway, you make different decisions to the decisions you'd make if you needed to have money through the door next week.
0: I did see some reporting a while back suggesting you might look at one or two acquisitions as well. Is that... Was, was that accurate? Is that part of the, the thinking...
1: Well, the particular report that you're referring to had plenty of inaccuracies, so I wouldn't make any judgments based on on what was in there, but we are looking at every opportunity in the market. It would be foolish not to, and it'd be foolish to rule anything out at this stage.
0: Okay. Um, again, zigzagging around a bit, um, you, after your time at Nine, you help publishers in other parts of the world have conversations with the uh, digital platforms, mainly... Alphabet slash Google and Meta slash Facebook um, around uh, potential funding. Um, How do you see that landscape in Australia now? And how are you planning on engaging there?
1: Look, I look at the news media bargaining code outcomes now as a keenly interested observer, I'd say. Um, The Meta renewals are up within the next 12-ish months. Uh, and I think it's going to be a really challenging time for publishers as a result.
0: Well, no no one seems to think that Meta will come back. It looks like things have gone pretty bad in Canada at the moment, for instance. Um, all of the noise seems to be that Meta will just walk away rather than renew.
1: It would be incredibly surprising that they've walked away from deals in the United States. They're taking the approach they're taking in Canada You only need to look around Europe to see similar approaches there. It would be surprising that Meta chose Australia to uh, take a different approach to their news partnerships. And you also look at the news partnerships team. Um, Much of the team in our region and in the United States are no longer in news partnerships roles or they've moved to other roles within Meta. Uh, I think there is a real challenge ahead for people who have built parts of their business off the back of that revenue coming up. Google's a different scenario. Uh, I've recently been involved in a collective bargaining approach in New Zealand where there was a positive outcome achieved with Google through negotiation. And uh, I think their approach to the news ecosystem as a whole is still very healthy. But when you have, you know, what might be $100 million a year disappearing from the funding models through meta withdrawing from the country. And I'm speculating they're doing doing rough maths. Call it 50 million. It's a lot of money. uh, And I think it is going to pose a challenge.
0: Have you yet talked to Google about having a slice of the pie going forward?
1: No, our focus is on building the right business for us. And if there was an opportunity for Partnerships with any partners, we'd of course explore it, but we're we're not starting out at the gates.
0: um, Conversation inevitable question that I think everyone asks in every interview now. Um, how are you thinking about AI as a tool?
1: I think it's still very very early days, and you will. I was in Taipei uh, a couple of weeks ago, hearing from publishers around the world, and the broad focus of publishers around AI is really interesting. Some have been using AI for several years to program stories or to automate tasks. Uh, Some are just exploring it as an emerging technology now. We're not building anything in our newsroom on day one off the back of artificial intelligence tools. We're using human intelligence. That's not to say that you wouldn't explore product enhancements down the track that add to what what humans can
0: otherwise do and are there opportunities in publishing that go beyond journalism when it comes to ai i think there's opportunities and challenges right and the biggest challenge today
1: is that there are a whole host of companies that can ingest journalistic content and use that content to build their own businesses and provide no compensation and we're back in a different version of the platforms debate while at the same time there is no reason for people, if if an artificial intelligence tool is giving them the answer, to, to come to the source. So uh, I think there are challenges ahead as a result, but th- there are also opportunities. I think the biggest opportunity for me is in the newsroom and accelerating the pathway to produce some journalism. If you're able to ingest a thousand pages of publicly available data near instantly, and receive a summary of here's the places to investigate and look at. That can only be good, but it has to supplement.
0: Are you yet building any of those sort of tools? Um, actually, and speaking of technology, yeah, talk us through your tech stack. What, what you built on?
1: If I look back at what would it be now, eight years ago that we rebuilt the Fairfax technology stack, we had to do it ourselves. So this was you and David Eisman? David was David was involved there. Damien Cronin led the technology He's over effort at the and product. Yes. Uh, If I reflect on what we did there, we toured the world and looked at what are different publishing companies doing? How are they approaching publishing content to the web and elsewhere? And we reached the very clear conclusion that, yes, there were models we could learn from, but we really had to do it ourselves. Fast forward to today, there are so many off-the-shelf publishing products and platforms that you can pull together to, I think, create a really stellar outcome without the investment. So we have an amazing tech lead in Ben White who has done a sensational job of bringing together a suite of publicly available platforms to, to create what we think is is a really stellar publishing tool.
0: So this is, I guess, the, the central things are how you make your um, central journalistic database, I guess... Output to multiple different places, that must be the, the key moment where the technologies talk to each other. Well,
1: there, there's a little bit in it. We, we have a content management system, we have a publishing deployment platform to deploy that to the web, uh, there's a membership and subscription system, there's a newsletter subscription. But it's not much more complicated
0: than that. Yes. And plugging all those together. Yes. And when you say news, you, you, that, that's the email part you're, you're, you're referring to there. That's right. Um, finally, a question um, we always ask all of our guests on the podcast. What would your critics say about you? What would your supporters say about having you?
1: listened to you every week? I can't believe I didn't
0: prepare an answer to that, Tim. <laughs> well, um, the one thing you know is the 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 rule I'm increasingly cracking down on is answers to the to to some version of "I just care too much." <laughs> I wouldn't say that about me. Um, I've 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 learned not to care too
1: much <laughs> over time. Um, critics, you'd have to ask them. You know, I I've I've heard plenty of different versions of criticism of me over time and uh, at at its heart I do genuinely believe I've made the right decisions in at particular points in time to support particular circumstances. So those those criticisms are many and feel free to do your tour of the market and and find them. Um, supporters I think would probably say I'm like a bit of a dog with a bone. I like to, I love to prove the naysayers wrong. Um, If you reflect back on my career, I joined news.com.au as editor when I was 22 and the accepted wisdom of the time was that news were going to shut down that website. We took it to the number one website in the country. When I launched Allure, there are still public blogs out there that talk about it being destined to fail and this will never work and he'll burn through a lot of money in Surrey Hills Uh, and we built a great business that was operating at 25% profit pretty consistently and ended up exiting it to Fairfax. Um, The Huffington Post can be talked about as a failure. I learnt so much from that business but also that business uh, was profitable in its first year, well ahead of plan, and it was factors relating to the global business that meant that it's no longer published in Australia in in that form. and i I look back at my Fairfax time, and you know part of the initial reason that I was hired was to was because the business planned to exit print and needed a digital only model in a very short space of time. And you know you look at the latest nine publishing results, and they are among the most profitable newspapers in the world. so. I kind of, if you look at supporters or at least look at how I feel about the world, um, I'd love to prove the doubters and naysayers wrong and that's something that is a key driver in this business as well. There's plenty of people, I think, willing it to work. There's plenty of people saying too that there can only be room for one or two voices in town and I'm a firm believer in that as long as we're producing great journalism, there's a there's a great business opportunity here. Chris, good luck with the launch
0: and thank you for your time. Cheers, Tim. Thank you. Today's episode was recorded and produced at the Sydney facilities of Abe's Audio. If you haven't already, don't forget to sign up for more podcasts like this one from Unmade on your favourite podcatcher. I'm Tim Burrows. Toodle pip. Unmade. Podcast edit by Abe's Audio.